0: Hi, I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week.
1: Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful.
0: So now we invite you to join us as we together listen
1: Listen for for the the
0: word. word. And welcome to our podcast today. Today we are going to look at Matthew 21 verses 23 through 32 And as we were preparing for this, I was just telling Alan, this is not my favorite parable. So um, anyway, I think it's one of the more complicated ones, the parable of the wicked tenants. And uh, I think Alan's going to give us some insight that might help a little bit.
1: Yeah, it is is a difficult text to preach on. Uh, This week's gospel lesson follows directly from last week's, and it continues Jesus' response to the Jewish religious leaders questioning of his authority to do and say what he was doing and saying. And this week, Jesus confronts them, basically, for rejecting him, which followed the pattern of Israel leader, Israel's leaders rejecting the prophets. And that's kind of the gist of the, of the parable.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When I got reading a little bit, I, before I dug into it um, with the Reformers, I looked at a couple of the um, commentaries, and it said this is just an allegorical. Uh, it, it is, is it correct?
1: is. Yeah, and I would say the parable of the wicked tenant farmers is probably the most overtly allegorical of Jesus' parables. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's also framed on an allegory from the old, the Hebrew Bible. Um, it's clearly framed with reference to the allegory of the vineyard in Isaiah 5, 1 through 7, where the vineyard is Israel and represents... Um, you know, the building of the vineyard represents all that God had done to establish them in the land, so that they had. He had good reason to expect that they would yield. Uh, the vineyard would yield grapes, which you know would would stand for true mercy, justice, and righteousness. But instead, what he got was rotten grapes, which in this context refers to violence. Mm-hmm. And so it also, it, it, that, that's kind of, it's so it's, it's an allegory, but it's also based on an allegory in the Hebrew Bible.
0: Interesting.
1: And it also, um, I think in this particular parable, clearly applies to the idea that the leaders of Israel traditionally rejected and even executed the prophets, and Jesus seems to construct this allegory as a kind of rebuke to them for following in that tradition.
0: Interesting. As I got looking at this, and they're, as they're telling us it's allegory, I think... You've kind of hit onto one of the complications, though, with looking at parables as a whole, is how do you know when it's allegory? How do you know when it's not allegory? Wouldn't a parable always be allegory, if you will? And I, help, help us understand that.
1: Well, you know, in the Middle Ages, um, allegorical interpretation was all the rage, you know, that was pretty much the standard yeah. approach to parables, and that's really not... Uh, you know the the, inf- the infamous example is um, Augustine's interpretation of the parable of the of the parable of the uh, good Samaritan, and it's just I mean it's just a hodgepodge. You know it takes the it takes the each character in the parable and and turns it into well this stands for this and this stands for that and that's just really alleg- allegorical interpretation run amok. Now, I think we have to understand that parables. Parables can be, as a parable can just simply be a wise saying, like mm-hmm. an axiom, right? No,
0: thank you. I think we think of it always having to be a story. No, I mean, Not a parable can
1: can be, can refer, the word parable in the Greek New Testament can refer to a wise saying. Uh, it, it typically refers to a story, but mostly the stories are stories taken from life that are meant to illustrate a point, but in Jesus' hands, usually it's the opposite point from what they expect. <laughs> right. Now, there are some parables that clearly have allegorical elements, um, although we might, you know, we might not want to like, allegorize every detail of the parable. But this parable seems to be constructed very clearly as an allegory on Jesus' now- part.
0: Remind us, Alan. Is this one just in Matthew, or is this in all of the Gospels?
1: It's in all three Synoptic Gospels. It's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke.
0: So this one is one that is well known in the tradition. Yeah. Is it? it Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. However, um, you you know, while Matthew, you know, I mean, this is Matthew found this parable already in Mark's uh, Gospel, uh, and and in 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 Mark and in Luke. The parable also has this allegorical um, feel to it. But Matthew's made some revisions that strengthen the allegory. And furthermore, in Matthew's version of the parable, the end result is not just that the leaders of Israel will be replaced by others, but rather the kingdom will be taken from Israel and given to the church of Jews and Gentiles as the renewed people of God, the people who will produce the fruit of the kingdom. Now, again, as I mentioned, um, well, again, this this has given modern readers cause for concern about Mm anti-Semitism. But in Matthew's context, that's probably anachronistic. We need to remember, first of all, that Matthew is responding to the leaders of the synagogue who are opposing them. And so in one sense, this is intra-Jewish intra-Jewish polemic, just like the prophets mm-hmm. Jeremiah or Isaiah or Amos or any of those others. Okay. But also we need to understand that, that Matthew's community was probably a persecuted minority in this time. And so right. this is, you know, it, it's one thing to frame this from the perspective of a church of a billion people. It's another thing to frame it from the perspective of a persecuted minority. Mm,
0: yeah, that does, that does help frame it. Mm-hmm. So... Um, Moving on then um, about this allegory, what else do we know about it? I I, I think we said it was in all three uh, synoptics, but do we have it somewhere else? We
1: do. We actually have a non-allegorical version of the parable in the Gospel of Thomas. And that that raises one major interpretive question is whether there was an original non-allegorical version of Jesus' parable or whether Jesus' original parable was intentionally allegorical. And if so, then what was the intent? The Gospel of Thomas does have a non-allegorical version of the parable, but the era of claiming that the Gospel of Thomas predates the gospel, the canonical Gospels, I think, is past. I think most New Testament scholars have moved beyond that. You know, there was a time back in the 20th century, after the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, that... that you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls were supposed to be the key to unlock everything, you know, yeah, right. yeah. In, in, in first century Judaism. And, and the same thing was true for the Gospel of Thomas when it was discovered um, with the Nag Hammadi codices. And, and, you know, uh, it was supposed to be this, just, this, this original gospel because it's just sayings. But, you know, one of the problems with that is the earliest uh, manuscripts we have of Thomas come from like the fourth century. Mm-hmm. which is a couple of hundred years after Later. the earliest gospel manuscripts. And and so most New Testament scholars these days don't go with the idea that Thomas is mm-hmm. predates the canonical gospels. And it's really much more likely that Thomas stripped Jesus' original parable of any allegorical elements to conform to his own Gnostic agenda. Um, mm. Likely, Lutz, Lutz suggests that it, it, it basically the point of the parable in Thomas is that the fate of the spark of Numa, it, it's about the fate of the well, spark of Numa oh. in the evil world of matter, which that is,
0: really takes us into a different kind of yep, context. Yep, yep. and and I. <laughs> Well, I mean, it makes sense with Thomas's yep, agenda, but it, it doesn't does. make sense within what Matthew's no. doing at no. all. No, or, so. or Jesus,
1: or Jesus, yeah.
0: Oh, yeah, or, or, frankly, Jesus. <laughs> right, right, right. Thank you.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Okay. <laughs> so how does it begin?
1: Well, it's interesting. The parable in Matthew's gospel begins rather abruptly. Listen to another parable. There's no, you know, the kingdom of heaven is like, it's just listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenants and went away. Now, I think perhaps the situation of conflict Matthew envisioned between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders at this particular juncture in Jesus' ministry has influenced his version of the parable, or perhaps even the conflict between Matthew's community and the synagogue. The details of the landowner building the vineyard here in Matthew correspond almost exactly to the details of the parable of the vineyard in Isaiah chapter 5, which reversed, again refers to God's planting of Israel in the promised land and giving them every reason to fulfill God's Torah by practicing mercy and justice. It really seems unavoidable that to conclude that Jesus intended his parable to be read allegorically. The question remains what the point of the parable may have been. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, one problem with this parable is that it presents us with challenges whether we read it as a story from life or whether we read it as an allegory. Um, if we try to read it as a story from life, it's about a wealthy absentee landlord who badly mismanages the vineyard. Uh, he's probably one of the most inept absentee landlords. Around you know, uh, just the fact that he planted the vineyard and went away raises questions of management. Although that was likely a common situation, <laughs> but but then he sent his servants to collect his fruits. His fruits, mm-hmm. which implies either that he claimed the entire crop, or that he claimed such a large portion of the harvest that it was it left the tenants barely enough to survive. Now many English translations try to soften this with his share ah. of the fruit. His share of the fruit. Uh-huh. Um, Ph- uh, Phillips, the the Good News Translation, the New Century Version, the Message, the Contemporary English Version, the NET Bible, the New International Reader's Bible, and the New Li- Li- the New Living Translation all have some version of his share of the fruit. And that translation fits Mark's version of the parable better, where it says that the landowner came to collect from the fruits of the vineyard.
0: Oh yes, yes, yes.
1: And and in English, most translations do have his share, a portion of the fruits mm-hmm. in Mark, but here um, it, it says it just to claim his fruits, basically, mm-hmm. as if as if the whole harvest was his.
0: It, you know it. Landowner is not looking really good in this. Whole
1: no, thing. not at all. He People not at all. are
0: working for him. <clears throat> he disappears completely. Does, gives, I mean, yeah, and then he comes back and collects it all, and they don't get it. I mean, it, 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 he, it doesn't look really good. So I'm kind of curious to see where this goes if we're comparing this. Where the allegory is right and,
1: and you know it. even okay. even if you read it allegorically like that you know it, it doesn't work very well either because the notion of God as an absentee landlord it really isn't very productive theologically oh. and I think it's I think we have to remember that it's important not to press the details of the parable beyond which they were intended mm-hmm. and unlike the parable of the workers in the vineyard the parable of the wicked tenant farmers is not a parable about God's character. And I think that's part of the problem with trying to understand what was the point of the parable. Uh, some people mm-hmm. want to, want to. well, this is another vineyard parable, right? So we have to take it like the parable of the workers uh-huh. in the vineyard before, and, and so this is a parable about God. This is not a parable about God.
0: That's, that's interesting. So is it fair to even say that the landlord is God? I mean... I think
1: you could say the landlord represents God, but that's not the point of the parable. It's not about God. The the parable is not about about God. This parable is about the tenants. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Okay.
0: So how, how does
1: it continue? So in, in verses 34 through 36, Matthew continues by saying, When the harvest time had come, he sent his slaves to the tenants to collect his produce. But the tenants seized his slaves and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. And he sent other slaves more than the first, and they treated them in the same way. And so again... The, the problem continues when you try to press this into a literal story. If the man is indeed an absentee landlord, he's not very he's not a very effective or observant one. You know Why? He sends servants to collect his produce and they get killed and beaten and stoned. Why would he send you know, servants back? You know He would send armed an armed uh, body of men you know to, to mm-hmm. force them to, to pay up. But, but also again when you when you if you try the other approach and try to press the details of the allegory to apply a theology about God it really doesn't work some have suggested that this is John O'Donohue that it's it's God's pursuit of you know God's reckless pursuit of and and you know un, unflinching pursuit of his people well it seems ineffectual to the point of being almost pitiable you know yeah. <laughs> I mean it's that's not,
0: that's not a lesson of <laughs> a lesson you see Jesus teaching about God. I mean that doesn't? No
1: I mean, I mean we it, all it get seems- the theology, we all get the theology of kenosis and in, in Paul's um, in Paul's theology and we all get the idea of, of God revealing his strength and weakness. Um, in, in, in the weakness of, of dying on the cross. That makes sense, but that's not what this parable is about either. This parable okay. is not about God. It's not about God in weakness.
0: <laughs> so what is it about?
1: Well, I think at this stage, then the, par- the, allegor- the, al- the point of the allegory becomes clear. Then he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and get his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. And again, on, on a literal level, it would make no sense for an absentee landlord to send his son to collect from tenants who had already beaten and killed his servants. That just doesn't it's work.
0: not logical. Well, and if the son were involved at all, wouldn't the son be the one watching over the vineyard so he wasn't really absent? I mean, the whole right, thing is Right, right,
1: right. It doesn't work. But the point of the allegory here is to identify the tenants as the Jewish leaders, the servants as the prophets, and the son as Jesus. And so, again, the, the the focal point of the parable here is just as the Jewish leaders throughout history rejected, imprisoned, and even executed the prophets, so the leaders of that day had rejected Jesus and, from Matthew's perspective, had killed him. So that Jesus' death actually took place at the hands of the Romans is not part of the point here. I mean, that's factual, but right. it's just not part of what's being right, pointed out. At right. point, you know, okay. It's not part of this parable. And so Matthew has actually revised the details of the parable to make it even more clear that this is the point of the parable. In Mark, the tenants kill the son first, then they throw him out of the vineyard. In Matthew, mm-hmm. the son is kid, killed outside the vineyard, just as Jesus was killed oh, outside wow. Jerusalem. And so Matthew, I think, kind of makes some adjustments to line the parable up even more as an allegory for the Jewish religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders' rejection of Jesus.
0: Question here, so. I'm seeing this as being as yes, a rejection of Jesus. I'm also seeing it as kind of a, a, passion prediction as well. Is that fair?
1: Well, I mean, Jesus has already predicted the passion, right? right several times, right. and and, and <laughs> later on, we're going to see there's also a, a, a hint to the to the resurrection, and Jesus has already predicted his resurrection. So, right. I mean, I, I think I think. I think we could see that. I mean, it's not. I wouldn't call it a passion prediction, but it's certainly, uh, it certainly uh, is a parable that's told with a view toward the passion that is mm. that is in, that is in, impending.
0: Okay. So then, what happens? What happens now? Or what's the next thing?
1: Well, as with the parable of the two sons we looked at last week, Jesus tells a story and then asks a question. Now, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and lease the vineyard to other tenants who will give them the produce at the harvest time. And so in response to the parable, Jesus asked the Jewish leaders what would happen to tenants who would do such a thing. And in effect, he's asking them to pronounce their own judgment. And this contrast in Mark's gospel, where Jesus himself pronounces this judgment. Mm-hmm. Now, one, one detail is that Matthew, following Mark, calls the owner of the vineyard the Lord of the vineyard. It's yeah. ha kurios tu ampelonas. So it's, it's mm-hmm. the Lord of the vineyard. However, most modern English versions render kurios as the owner of the vineyard. And I think in doing so, they miss the nuance that we're meant to hear. This particular owner of the vineyard has the authority as the Lord of the vineyard to enact the judgment that the Jewish religious leaders pronounce on themselves. And only, only older translations follow this. Wycliffe, the Geneva Bible, the King James Version, hmm. and the American Standard Version. Uh, and also, but among more modern translations, there is a revised Geneva translation of the New Testament. And uh, it, it, it follows that. Yeah,
0: yep. uh, Huh. That's, that's interesting. Why, why do you think that more contemporary ones leave it out?
1: I I don't really know to be honest with you. I mean, I think you could say the master of the vineyard, but I wouldn't right. I wouldn't say owner of the vineyard. I I don't think that really works well. Yeah, I think I think there's some reticence on the part of 20th century scholarship to always assume that curios means lord. That sometimes it oh. could just mean, it can mean something other than lord as we understand lord. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I, I think here I don't see any reason for that i mean it seems like it, yeah. it it's it, it's part of the it's part of the parable so i think yeah. i think it's a missed i think i, I think it's a missed miss translation interesting. that's yeah.
0: interesting okay so um now what what happens next this, this ties into um some some scripture actually
1: yeah 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 well and at this point um basically um matthew moves to jesus quotation of scripture as in mark have you never read the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone this was the lord's doing and it is amazing in our eyes that's matthew 21 42 Mm -hmm. and this is a quotation from psalm 118 22 through 23 and it follows the septuagint version of the psalm verbatim which is Mm -hmm. actually psalm 117 And in the New Testament, this psalm not only became associated with other stone texts from the Masoretic texts that were read as references to the Messiah, but more importantly, this this stone passage, this, this idea of the stone that the builders rejected became the cornerstone, it was associated with Jesus' resurrection as God's vindication of Jesus and his ministry. And so as we found elsewhere in Matthew, have you never read is a challenge um and the uh-huh. implication is as those who claim to know the scriptures, they should have understood this. So again yeah. it's it's a it's a challenge. It's Jesus is confronting them, he's 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 rebuking them.
0: Yes, yes. So then then there's this little dialogue that happens what what is that all about
1: well and and actually this is a part that's only in matthew's gospel this 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 part at this part of matthew's version of the parable matthew inserts a portion of dialogue that seems to function for matthew as the key to understanding what the parable of the wicked Mm tenant farmers is about Uh, therefore i tell you the kingdom of god will be taken away from you and given to a people that produces its fruits the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. That's verses 43 and 44. Mm-hmm. And here the implication of the parable, at least from Matthew's perspective, is clear. While Jesus says that the kingdom will be taken from the Jewish leaders, the kingdom will be taken from you, he's talking to, talking to the Jewish leaders. Mm-hmm. He also says it will be given to a nation, and the word is ethnos, that will produce mm-hmm. its fruits. Just And, and, and actually... Producing its fruits is 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 kind of a reference back to the the very judgment that the leaders pronounced on themselves that mm-hmm. that you know he would he would um, that that the lo- that the Lord of the Vineyard would would put the wretches to a miserable death and lease the vineyard to other tenants who would give them the produce at the harvest time, and so that's the idea. It's sort of like uh, yes, this is what's going to happen. The kingdom will be taken away from the Jewish leaders, but it will also be given to a nation that will produce its fruits, mm-hmm. but the nation. Cannot replace the leadership. <laughs> you know, it it really right. doesn't work to to see this nation as being well. This just means different leaders. It really seems to go beyond the idea of 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 critic criticizing the leadership and pointing really toward as as Jean Boring says, a renewed people of God, the Church of Jews and Gentiles who are called by God in place of unfaithful Israel. That seems to be Matthew's. That seems to be what Matthew wants mm-hmm. us to okay. get from this parable. Yeah. yeah. Now, obviously, this has potentially offensive connotations in light of Christian anti Semitism through the history of the church. But we really have to remember again that at this stage, the Christians were a persecuted minority.
0: Yeah, I was thinking about this. I mean, I think at least from the Roman perspective, the Christians are just another group of Jews, like a Jewish. Right?
1: Oh, yeah. Right? Right? Right.
0: Yeah. Right. Okay. Right. So I think that's important because we're reading kind of modern. You can't read this from the
1: perspective of the church as an institution that is established in the world. You know, a a church of a billion people. You have to see this uh, in the in the context in its in its Mm -hmm. original context. Right. Um, Now, furthermore, in the New Testament, it is clear that the church of Jews and Gentiles is viewed as the people of God. Although Paul does see a role for a restored Israel in God's purpose at some Mm -hmm. point. Now the references in verse um, in Matthew twenty-one forty-four are to the stone of stumbling of Isaiah eight fourteen, which was seen as a messianic mm-hmm. text, and the stone that will crush the rival kingdoms of, kingdoms of the world wow. in Daniel. Chapter Two. You may recall mm-hmm. Daniel Chapter Two is of the statue that has um, it's it's made of gold and silver and bronze and then iron mixed with clay. The feet are feet of clay. <laughs> the feet are made of yes. iron mixed yes. with clay, yes. and it refers to four kingdoms. And there's a stone comes along and and crushes the feet and the statue comes toppling down. And right. and the stone represents the kingdom of God, which will which is going to be an everlasting kingdom and is going to going to um, supplant, I guess, replace the rival kingdoms of the world.
0: Mm. So how does this conclude?
1: At, at this point, I should probably mention that actually Matthew twenty-one forty-four is missing from Codex Beza oh. or D oh. and some old Latin Syriac man- versions huh. from Eusebius and from some of Origins references and some modern English versions either omit it, like oh. the Revised Standard Version, it's in a footnote, or printed in brackets as a later edition. but I don't. I, I. I. You know. I don't think that. I don't think that really works. I think. I think verse forty-four is original.
0: Okay. Now I'm. Now I'm looking at it. It's not in here.
1: It's in the new RSV. It's not in the revised standard version.
0: Oh. Oh. Okay. Oh. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. I love those things. Yeah. Okay. So how does it? How does this conclude then?
1: So Matthew then concludes the parable in a manner similar to Mark. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they realized that he was speaking about them. They wanted to arrest him, but they feared the crowds because they regarded him as a prophet. And that's verses 45 and 46. Mm -hmm. And again, you know, if we see the parable as an allegory based on the allegory of the vineyard in Isaiah chapter Mm 5, where God expected Israel to produce the fruits of faithfulness, mercy, and justice, but instead found violence, then here it's an allegory about how the Jewish religious leaders, following the pattern of those who came before them, who rejected and killed the prophets, also rejected and killed Jesus. Mm -hmm. That's the point of this parable. This is a parable to confront the Jewish religious leaders for rejecting and killing Jesus.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and in Matthew the the focus shifts from the chief priests and the elders of the people which we saw earlier as the ones who were challenging him on his authority Mm -hmm. to the chief priests and the pharisees likely because it was the rabbis who were sort of the the spiritual descendants of the of the pharisees it was the rabbis and their followers who were opposing Matthew's community so I think I think Matthew Sort of, re, uh, Mark just says them, they, that you know, they, you know, that, that the parable, they, 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 figured out that the parable was about them. He doesn't specify, but in Matthew, it's the chief priests and the Pharisees. Now, again, here we see the influence of the crowd on the Jewish leaders. They, they wanted to arrest him, but they mm-hmm. feared the crowds, right, because they feared, right. regarded him as a prophet. And, and unfortunately, in Matthew. Uh, this, the, this influence of the crowds reinforces the idea that the Jewish people have been unfaithful and, and later, mm-hmm. you know, the crowds are complicit in Jesus' death. And therefore, God has called forth the church as the renewed people of God. Again, although I realize this whole line of thinking is problematic mm-hmm. for our day, I agree with Gene Boring that we must allow Matthew to mean whatever he meant. In other words, mm-hmm. it, it, we really shouldn't read our own sensitivities into Matthew's time and uh, into Matthew's context. Right. And I would go beyond saying we must allow Matthew to mean whatever he meant and say we must also remember the context in which Matthew's gospel was written. Uh, yeah, the church I was agree. a fledgling community that was under under attack from, from the Jewish synagogue, which was the established religious institution in Jewish life, right? At that point, mm-hmm. after the destruction of the temple, the, the synagogue was the focus of Jewish life. Um, the, mm-hmm. Very likely Matthew's community had been, had been expelled from the synagogue, perhaps even separated from their families. So they're, nice. they're, you know, they're um, <laughs> in a sense refugees <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and, you know, they're in a very vulnerable situation. So we really have to be careful to remember that in order to rightly read this parable, I think.
0: Yeah. Well, this is wonderful. And yet my brain is. And so what are we going to preach about? You <laughs> yeah, know, That's the um, question because we tend we want to look at how does what does this inform us for today and here we have this parable that really doesn't translate well today so we'll talk about that later we'll talk about calvin in a few minutes
1: okay thanks Hi, friends. We're back, and we're going to take a look at what Calvin had to say about this parable. And so, Christy, um, shed light on this for us.
0: Yeah, I really looked at Calvin's commentaries today, and uh, it's it's an interesting parable to deal with, obviously, because it's in all the three synoptics, so it's all about harmonization, um, which makes it harder to get at kind of Matthew's interpretation. Um Calvin's observation is that this is a warning to the religious leaders that there is nothing they can do to rob God of His rights.
1: Mm, that's and interesting.
0: So, so, for Calvin, the uh, what's the word I'm looking for?
1: Servants who came to collect.
0: The servants. For Calvin, the servants, those who came to collect, were the prophets, and the son was Jesus, and this was a warning. Um, to the, uh, the the tenants. So you've got all these different people in there that mm-hmm. have very specific allegoric allegorical presentations.
1: Yeah. Well, and that, that I mean that kind of goes along with what we were talking about earlier.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that said, he analyzes the as he analyzes a parable, what really struck me about working with Calvin is that you kind of get A clear division between good and evil, and you really get a discussion of Calvin's theodicy. So I called it Calvin's Theodicy 101. (laughs) So here's this vineyard image. God has turned over his his vineyard, if you will, to the pastors to care for it. So there's Mm -hmm. another layer of allegory there with the Mm -hmm. pastors. They never have control to run it themselves, but are called to be caretakers. And he is comparing this to Isaiah and Jeremiah, that he did not have results from the vineyard. And so here Christ claims that the husbandmen did not care for the vineyard as they were entrusted to them. He does not immediately attach an allegorical meaning to this, but then turns to Paul and compares First Timothy 315 to this claiming that the pastors are entrusted to the caretaking much as the tenant farmers. Mm. So you can read here this is um you can read the reformation into this right yeah sure being, mm-hmm. yeah i mean i would i would
1: guess i would guess the original tenants were were were, were the catholic church
0: yes. and
1: now it's the reformed right. pastors who have have taken over the the running of the vineyard yes. so that you know they're going to they're going to take proper care of the vineyard
0: right right i point this out because i think it'd be easy to claim that calvin sees this as Mary an allegory for the current church. What's interesting? He's smarter, and he places it in the context of Scripture. So, of course, he eventually gets there. So, there's—you see this? I, I think with Calvin, we we assume he always has this single lens that he comes mm-hmm. in, but here he's kind of developing this argument, and it's—and he's really going back and reading Scripture uh, against Scripture, which I pointed out all the places he's tying into, and then he moves through and saying, "Hey, the pastors are supposed to be the caretakers in the early church." And then eventually he moves on, as Alan said, to uh, the concurrent time. Mm-hmm. So he's got
1: different layers of of how he looks at it. He looks at yes. it from the standpoint of Jesus' perspective, and then he looks at it from the standpoint of his own perspective.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And why why this is important is that is it is a reminder. It is a reminder of the sinful nature of humanity the reality of our fallen state, and ultimately the cause Mm. of evil, which is that fallenness. By using this type of interpretation, Calvin provides an argument for the historical repetition that started with humanity's fall.
1: So in other words, the reformed pastors who are now the caretakers of the vineyard could fall into the same pattern of of neglect. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely.
0: Then he turns awkwardly to the traditional interpretations that the tenants are the priests, the slave and servants, the prophets and the Son, Christ. And while this is good, he steeps it in heritage from the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. What is interesting is that he makes sure to point out in reference to Matthew 21, 42, that this reference to scripture is an Old Testament uh, prediction made, not specifically of Christ, but that the promise of the Messiah is coming from the house of David and it was Mm. a prelude.
1: Wow, interesting. So he interprets that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone with reference to the house of David. Yes. Wow.
0: In other words, he seems to recognize that the Hebrew scripture was not written as a prequel to the existing Christian narrative, Mm -hmm. but rather that it came before and was rather a prelude. That's That's also insignificant.
1: uh, It's pretty astute, actually, on his part.
0: I think so, too. And again, we tend to, I mean... I think when I was younger, I learned to think of the Old Testament as predicting Christ, and Calvin himself is saying, "Ah, that's not—that doesn't really work." Yeah, um, yeah. So, again, one of the ways that Calvin is ahead of his time. So all of this is a backdrop to this analysis of good and evil that I promised. As Calvin notes, the common—the common thread is that God knows that humans will try to obstruct. Christ. Mm. And second, that God will overcome evil. So in other words, we are digging into two primary tenets of Calvin's theology. First, sovereignty of God to salvation by faith, faith leading to good works. And it is irresistible, and it will defeat evil.
1: But it sounds like Quite. in there, there's always the possibility that even the best-intentioned human reformed pastors could um, try to obstruct Christ. <laughs>
0: right right. exactly well humanity and so that's that's the edge there that you're getting to and this is the problem with calvin is he's he's not actually he never fully works it out so christ as the son of god means and and being and god being sovereign means that evil cannot win against it Mm -hmm. because god can't be sovereign if even evil can win So in other words, the source of evil is simply disbelief, which in the end can't win over Christ. It has no standing. So if you Mm. understand this aspect of Calvin, you can understand that part of Calvin that argues for universalism, or at least the hope of it. Surely. If God is sovereign, if God is creator, if faith is irresistible, then universalism is a logical conclusion conclusion well i mean and that's the, read,
1: that's the title of a, of a book that um hendrikus Burkoff wrote about Ka- Ka- bart's theology uh the triumph yeah. of god's grace you know and that's the uh, that you know the triumph of god's sovereign grace i mean uh, ultimately yeah
0: exactly we do know however this is not consistent in the calvin that we know and so he does find room for theology that allows for those who can't be saved mm-hmm. and this becomes more the legacy of calvin within the context of pre double predestination right but this other theme in calvin's theology is present god's power will prevail quote god's power will prevail after all
1: wow is that from the commentary
0: yeah yeah wow yeah so calvin doesn't reconcile it yeah and that's the thing is i hear this i have calvin in a box about the double predestination and yet he has this opposing idea Mm. now what I didn't have a chance to do, and what I think it would be interesting to do, if there's a difference between, well, but you even see it in the commentaries, even in the la, or in the in the institutes, even in the last part, you'll see in the early part this kind of ideal about hope for for universalism, and on the other hand, double predestination in the same work that's mm-hmm. came out at the same time. I don't know if there's a scholar that's done something to say maybe, you know is there a mature is there a mature theology after it mm-hmm. maybe that's what people turn to i'm not sure i think people just want to ignore this part of it because um, it was an easier way to explain to explain a way well
1: certainly i mean the the mainstream of the reformed tradition at that time seemed to you know in the 17th century seemed to be more interested in the double predestination and they seemed to mm-hmm. to follow that more uh, even I would say the Westminster, um, uh, you know, standards, you know, seem to yeah, seem absolutely. to follow that more. I agree. Yeah. I agree, <clears throat> and um, I think
0: they're missing out on the depth of, of Calvin as a thinker.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep.
0: So in the next section, this is where Calvin contradicts himself. So we just saw this quote: "God's power will prevail after all," and then why evil can prevail in individuals, even those called to high office. Mm in other words people charged with the building of the church can be quote an evil a, a criminal evil criminal enemies of Christ mm. instead of the servants they ought
1: wow so in other <laughs> words the mistake the mistake that the Jewish religious leaders made the mistake that the Roman Catholic leaders made is a mistake that anyone can make
0: uh huh exactly wow and of course <laughs> this is so funny now, funny but sad, he looks to the Roman Catholic Church as this example. Well, of course he does. So it, yes. So, in the end of the explanation for the evil in the parable, and that that holds the church now is human sin turning away from God. But in the end, God will prevail. Mm. But he leaves room for evil individuals who will never be reconciled to God. Wow. He is even confounded how quote We should be amazed that the teaching of the gospel does not bring all men into obedience to
1: God. Mm. But you can really see the tension here in this passage, mm-hmm. you know, between his 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 emphasis on on the sovereignty of God that will prevail, and yet his emphasis on um, um, total depravity, you know, that 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 man is f- human humanity is fallen and is always susceptible to the power of sin and even even as he says the best intentioned people can can be led away and, and do evil. <laughs> and yeah. yeah. Wow. What a what yeah. a tension.
0: It is. It is quite a tension. And um, anyway, I, I like it because I think it shows us that Calvin is a much deeper thinker than we have sometimes given credit. I also think it shows us that he never fully Figures this out. Mm-hmm. That this is a this is his big hole in his theology, and um, I think everyone who does theology has holes. I mean, I of think course. that's why it's such a course. wonderful, a, a wonderful thing to study because there's always some piece that it's like, but it doesn't work together. Right. And to me, there's in Calvin too. There's a difference between his idealism and what he sees as realistic. Right. I mean, like a, a practical theology. He's like, I can't make sense how can this irresistible god how can these people resist unless they were under the influence
1: to? of evil yeah
0: right yeah. right so well, anyway, i think it's interesting um,
1: i think it's interesting that he kind of you know he he has that whole uh, line of comparison that that you know the jewish religious leaders gave in to this temptation the the Roman Catholic leaders gave in to this temptation, and now the Reformed pastors are called to be the caretakers. But you know, any human being can give it can can fall to this temptation as well, and so it's a bit of a cautionary tale on his part, I uh, guess.
0: It is. It is. Yeah. So, well, that's what I have today.
1: All right. Thanks, Christy.
0: Thanks. everybody we're back and I think as you listened to these first two components of our podcast you might be thinking "Ooh, this is not going to be the easiest parable to preach about it's um, it's hard to find a link from this parable that's clearly written um, at a time um, of dissension within the Jewish community um, how do we make it make sense today for our congregations and so I thought I would let Alan have some input what he thinks that might be a good way to approach it. Well, and,
1: you know, the problem is that it seems clear that Jesus intended this parable to confront the Jewish religious leaders for their rejection, not only of himself, but also for their, you know, the fact that they're sort of implicitly involved in the fact that Jewish leaders had always rejected the prophets and so you know god god sent his servants the prophets and they rejected them and so then god sends his son and they reject him and kill him as well and that's that's the point of the parable and so how do how do we how do we you know apply that to contemporary times that's the problem really is right uh,
0: right
1: uh, it's a negative parable
0: a very negative parable and it it if you try to we've talked about this at the beginning if you try to try to use it as a as a parable for the identity of God it doesn't really no, work i it mean does it not. doesn't make god look that good kind of absentee landlord i mean I sounds just, like a deist. i, I, I think <laughs> that's a, approach. i think that's you know? a bad
1: approach to to the theology of god
0: yeah yeah, yeah. this so, is
1: uh, i i can't i, I mean I, I would just reiterate what i said earlier this is in my opinion this is not a parable about god this is right. a parable about the Jewish religious leaders rejecting Jesus, just as right. their their predecessors had re- had rejected the prophets. So it's right. a, it's a parable about unfaithfulness. It's a parable about refusing to to respond rightly to God, and um, you know. Okay, so what do you do? You you, you, you preach a sermon on um, you know repent ye sinners because you have you That's have refused right. to uh, you have refused I bet to, there was to a
0: bunch of them like that. You have you refused
1: know? to heed my words as God's prophet sent to you. I don't know that that'll play too well in most churches. Um, not the
0: not today's world.
1: No. I think we can maybe look at a clue in the scripture quotation that Jesus mentions. Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is amazing in our eyes. Um, and, and, you know, as I mentioned before, in the New Testament, um, this scripture was taken, it was associated with the resurrection. Uh, uh, this was seen sort of as a proof text for the resurrection, as the 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 act of God by which God vindicates Jesus and His ministry, by which God vindicates you know the work of the kingdom that Jesus had come to do, and so um, I think I think that's that's one one thing that we can look at that's really positive here is that you know despite. Whatever history of unfaithfulness, despite whatever history of human sinfulness or human failure or human falling to temptation, however we want to put it, uh, God's kingdom is going to prevail. That's that's you know that's the idea, and 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 God's purpose is going to prevail. And so maybe we we go to the we go to what Calvin said: God's power will prevail after all. Maybe we take Mm -hmm. the clue from Calvin here and we 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 focus on that aspect of the parable that
0: I like that
1: that yeah even in the face and you know here i think maybe it would do well for us all to to as pastors humbly recognize you know i fall short all the time i am not a perfect pastor i i fall fall to temptations i fall to to my own human weaknesses all the time and yet, I continue to try to do my best to serve God faithfully in my position. Mm-hmm. And so, it's it's not an either-or kind of thing. It's not a, well, there are, I mean, obviously, there are some um, people who have been um, con artists and some people who have used... The, their, their position in ministry to uh, defraud people or to mm-hmm. um, uh, misuse people or, you know, to oppress people. Or, you know, obviously there are some people who have done that. But I think for most of us out there, it's not, a, we're, it's not an evil or good kind of situation. It's a, we're fallen, fallible human beings
0: right, right.
1: trying to be as faithful as we can. To God. And that's not really, I mean, that's that's a that's a stretch maybe of application because that's not what Jesus had in mind. It wasn't saying that the that the Jewish religious leaders were were fallen infallible and they were doing the best they could. They 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 were were stubbornly refusing God's message.
0: Right, right. As
1: they had for, 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 for generations, right?
0: But I like this cornerstone piece, God's God, God will prevail. I think that's a really positive because, as I'm looking at the world, and you look at, it, it, you look at the decline of the church. You look at um, even I've been reading attacks of the church lately on some of the social media. Um, when you look at the kind of of, of unjust war, when you look at, mm-hmm. I think it it could come out as a real despite all of these things, even the very worst that could happen. That God's going to prevail from it, and I think that's a really positive way to.
1: Well, and I think it. if we want to if we want to bring it to closer to the point of the original parable, I think we can we can we can have the confidence that God's power will, will prevail despite our human weakness. Mm-hmm. You know, all of us, pastor and people, you know, we mm-hmm. all yeah. are subject to our own human weakness. We are all subject to our fallen fallenness. None okay. of us follows christ perfectly none of us is is perfectly faithful to god right? And, and as you know as as calvin pointed out you know we are all subject to this weakness and and yet again i want i would want to say that it's not an either or thing it's not all evil or it's not all good it's that you know we're all good people trying to do the best we can to be faithful to god and to be faithful to christ in the midst of our own weakness in the midst of our own fallenness and and yet you know that image of the stone that the builders rejected it's it's the image of um, so um, unfortunately um, you know the cornerstone for us has a different implication than I think is originally meant there because mm-hmm. the cornerstone in, in our, concept of building a building today is the first stone that's laid it's the it's the one that's Mm -hmm. laid first and then all the other stones or bricks or whatever they may be are are aligned with the cornerstone it becomes like the foundation stone but the idea here is more like that of a building of an arch so the the oh. the stonemasons are building an arch and they 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 are you know sorting from the stone that they have available to them and they initially toss aside a piece of stone as worthless and then when they get to the end of the arch they find that that piece of stone yes. is going to work perfectly as the capstone capstone would be a better translation there the the, the, oh, the really? stone that the oh, builders wow. rejected has become the capstone, capstone. because with an arch, huh. it's that capstone, that last mm-hmm. stone that goes into right. an arch that holds everything together, mm-hmm. and that oh, is a that is a better analogy. And so the idea, you know, is that you know even though even though Jesus was rejected, God is going to vindicate him, and he's going to become, you know, the stone that holds everything together, basically.
0: Interesting. Does anyone translate it that way, Alan?
1: Uh, the, com- the contemporary English version says the stone that the builders tossed aside has now become the most important stone. Okay. That's, okay. that's, not, a bad, that's mm-hmm. not a bad effort. Um, uh, the Good News translation does something similar. The stone which the builders rejected as worthless turned out to be the most important of all. The original living Bible says the stone built rejected by the builders has now become the capstone of the arch. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right
0: there. Right there. Yeah, right there. Yeah, definitely.
1: (laughs) Uh, The new international readers' version also says the stone the builders didn't accept has become the most important stone of all. Okay. So yeah, there's there are some there are some that do translate it that way.
0: Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
1: I I mean, I, I like this because the idea is, even though my efforts may be sometimes misguided and sometimes flawed and sometimes um, hampered by my own human fallenness and my own human weakness, um, God can take what I do in ministry as, as prone to weakness as I am, just as Calvin pointed out, and can still use it for good in building up his kingdom. And so yeah. that's yeah, that's yeah, something I that I take comfort in. And I don't yeah. know if that's a an avenue for some 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 thought for applying this parable. Um, I mean I think I'm not the only one who maybe struggles with that, hoping that, that, that what I do for the sake of, of Christ is going to make a difference and is going to right, right, contribute to toward the kingdom of God. I, I think there are people in our churches who, who wrestle with that as well. We all know that we are fallen and and we all know seem to know very well our shortcomings and I think we all tend to take for granted whatever contributions we may make I'm I'm a kind of person that people say oh that was so great and I just think oh it was no big deal. You know, I'm just, right, I'm just right. be doing my thing. I'm just doing my thing. Right. And so yeah, we all yeah, tend yeah, to take yeah. ourselves for granted. And maybe I realize this may be stretching it a bit because this is far from Jesus confronting the Jewish religious leaders over their rejection of Him. But um, perhaps there's a there's a, a little kernel of hope there in the idea that of the stone that the builders rejected becoming the most important stone. That you know God is going to take even even our flawed efforts right at, at right, caretaking right. the good. vineyard and is going to use them for good yeah maybe yeah. I don't know this is a tough one to preach know. this is a it's tough a one t- to preach it's
0: a tough one it's a tough one definitely and as I said it's one I think a lot of people probably jump over but um, if you're if you're trying to read through the maybe the gospel text of the lectionary I think I think we have a couple ideas here that that can make it um, that can make it palatable and also um, I, it's just it's 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 palatable and, and, and understandable to your congregation. Yeah,
1: it just I don't know what you do with the Jewish religious leaders rejected Jesus, and <laughs> they they were right. being unfaithful to God in doing so. I I don't know right. what you do with that. I mean, unless you unless you preach a repent you sinners kind of sermon, and uh, well, that's not my that's not my approach.
0: No, that's not my approach either. And I'm afraid there's a lot of them out there like that. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. All right, well, I, I appreciate it. I wish everyone uh, the best in, uh, in approaching this next week. Thanks, Christy. Thanks.
1: That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us.
0: It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ.
1: We hope you'll tune in next week, and in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word.
0: Word.